The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Tuesdays at 10pm on FX. Join us every week after the show. This job was a lot harder to do before people just posted random videos of whatever on the internet, on YouTube. Our job has gotten so much easier when there are people in Scotland posting pictures of midge swarms. Wow. Because we would not have known what a midge swarm looked like thanks to that unnamed person in Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Americans podcast for season five. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and I'm your host for the series, which goes behind the scenes of the show. Today, we'll be talking about episode 502, Pests, first with the showrunners who also wrote this episode, and then we'll take a closer look at that creepy scene with Elizabeth in the greenhouse, with director Chris Long, director of photography Dan Stoloff, and with the people responsible for those itch-inducing visual effects. Finally, Stoloff will talk about his job and point out some of the ways The Americans is photographed differently from other shows. Today, I'm in glamorous Gowanus, Brooklyn, with Joe Weisberg, the creator of the show. Hi, Joe. Hello, June Thomas. And his co-showrunner and co-executive producer, Joel Fields. Hi, Joel. Hey, June. How are you today? Very well, thank you. So today we are discussing episode two, Pests. When Philip and Elizabeth get home from one of the most fatiguing experiences of their life, even of their lives, they're absolutely and utterly exhausted. They've just dug a nine-foot hole, killed a comrade. (laughs) And then it looks like Paige has gone missing, and they're totally back with their hearts pounding. Why was she in the closet? I mean, we know literally why, but... How did you end up putting her there? Well, there's a very interesting process story there for us. We had written that episode a long time ago, filmed it, we're pleased with it, and got a call. First, we got a call from the network. They had these questions in episode two, which were sort of hard to cut through for us. We had a lot of back and forth with them. We were trying to figure out what they were saying. And finally, John Langreff himself called. And he was asking a lot of questions about where Philip and Elizabeth were at emotionally with Paige. And mm-hmm. we explained it all. We explained everything that was in our head in terms of the story we wanted to tell. And there was this pause and he said, I totally get that you're telling that story. I'm not feeling it. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, that's interesting. And John really gives that note. Mm-hmm. And so we started to talk. Now that scene upstairs in Paige's bedroom with her asleep in the closet didn't exist, nor did the scene where Philip talks to Stan and Stan says, I think something's not quite right in Pageland. And although the scene in the bathroom existed, where Philip expressed his concern Mm. that things were going to fall apart and the page was going to slip, that existed, but it didn't exist with the few lines about I was over at Stan's and he Mm. said something's not right in Pageland. I think in our heads, a lot of that had occurred off camera not the specific about the scene in the closet, but that, that emotional feeling that occurred off camera and yeah. we hadn't shown it. And John's note 
triggered in us the notion that, gee, maybe that was too much in our heads and not enough on screen. And I think we very quickly came up with the idea of the scene between Stan and Philip, and we started to talk about what could happen with Paige. What could they come? Well, I think we got that, that scene quick, the Paige scene pretty quickly too. But we had a lot of versions of it. Many. We we wanted to have her be sort of upset and freaked out like that. The goal being to upset her parents, to have mm-hmm. Philip and Elizabeth recognize that there was a more dire situation in terms of her psyche and and her future and and everything. But we put it. Everywhere here's a we list put in here's a here's a list, a list, of a list. some of the places where they found foot, foot of the bed in her bedroom hallway at the top of the stairs hallway at the bottom of the stairs hallway on every step of the stairs yeah. on the median stair <laughs> in the car in the garage <laughs> in her parents' bedroom in her parents' bed fully dressed on top of her parents' bed fully dressed in her parents' bed on the floor in front of her parents' bed there were a lot of different places but I will tell you this when the closet sprang into our unconscious that was it we're not really joking we we really played the scene and it was it, to even call it a scene it wasn't a scene yet we were evolving the scene it didn't work in any of those other places huh. but it always felt close it always felt like we're on to the right idea but we haven't got it we haven't got it we haven't got it and after you run through 10 places you do start to think maybe it's not quite right but yeah. something forced us to hold on to it it seemed we just had to get the right location but once you get to the closet you're really out of location right. <laughs> it was down in the closet and we tried the closet we're like oh that works it felt right emotionally to us. So as well as Paige upsetting her parents because she's sleeping in the closet because that's the only place she can calm herself, we also see, I think for the first time in this episode, Elizabeth training Paige. It seems to help Paige, and it's a way for Elizabeth to kind of pass along something that is really important, that's something that she's really good at, that's also really practical. And it seems also one of the really rare places where Elizabeth and Paige can really talk and communicate. Although the talk doesn't go great. True, but my gosh, she really goes for it. She goes from zero to 100 when she asks that question. Well, but She's Elizabeth Jennings. She doesn't have time. You know, <laughs> that's, she's that's... got a lot to do. How are things going with Matthew? Paige. Fine. What's that mean? Fine means fine. I really like him. Why can't you just let me like him? I mean, when are you and Dad going to trust me? I'm not are you having sex? So what were you looking for in those interactions? Well, there, there are a lot of layers there, you know, which is always our sweet spot. You got the best parenting and the worst parenting all at once, right? The best parenting is she's so in tune with her daughter and her fears and what she needs and what could help her get over it. And the ability that very few parents have that she has to address it directly. Mm-hmm. And and she's right. Just across the board is this beautiful act of parenting. And side by side with that, there's this subtext. I don't know if that's quite the right word for it in, in this case, but it's more like there's this other layer of mm-hmm. what's going on of... If her daughter learns this stuff, she's on the path to following Elizabeth's footsteps, which is probably the worst parenting. I mean, I don't know. That's <laughs> as we've discussed over the years, that's a yeah. that's a complex thing, but it's probably not the, the greatest thing for Paige. And, and the fact that those can coexist in, in her mothering is mm-hmm. is kind of fascinating to us. Well, and I think it also goes into full bloom in the final scene of the episode where you have both of the parents together going into Paige's room and finally abandoning this notion that they're going to try to force her to be the child that they want her to be. 
that they're going to force her to date the boy that they want her to date and not date the boy that they don't want her to date, that they're going to let her do what she wants. And in order to do that, they're going to give her the gift of teaching her how to lie. Mm. Well, I was saying one more thing about the mm-hmm. scene in the garage. It's a great Chris Long moment, Chris being our producing director and, and the director of the episode. You know, we said, really, Chris, what we want is this not to look like the martial arts training episodes you usually see. Yeah. So please just find a way to do something different. Yeah. And what he came up with there was so simple and so real, mm-hmm. right? So you don't feel like you're watching Elizabeth teach page, you know, Sistema right. or some in- incredibly yeah. elaborate moves. You feel like it, it's just totally believable. Yeah. There's another little bit of teaching between parents and children at the end where Paige all messed up her parents knowing that she's messed up and also just worried that she's going to reveal everything they teach her a technique for should we all do it let's all do it yeah let's all we're do all it. doing it right now yeah we're oh, doing i'm remembering it. where i came from i know me too <laughs> i'm going to start talking the really thick right, mancunian accent wow. right now <laughs> what moment did you go to when you did that when you rubbed your thumb and i uh, went to seeing Paige do it on <laughs> wow. episode That's two of the american really didn't take you back very far not very far wow. no. <laughs> okay we're gonna work on that june <laughs> okay where, where did you guys go? No, I didn't go anywhere. It doesn't work. <laughs> well, is it real? We, we don't want to give a spoiler. To answer that question would be a spoiler. Oh. To move away from the Jennings house just for a minute or two, we hear from Oleg's new boss that the KGB is the only Russian institution that isn't corrupt. Is that true or is it self-delusion on his boss's part? Both. It's a little bit of both. There hmm. was a uh, widespread feeling. A lot of people in the KGB at the time had it that the Soviet bureaucracy, the government, the army, uh, the party in general, that there was such widespread corruption. Mm -hmm. And the KGB in many ways had not fallen prey to that corruption. It was pretty hard to bribe a KGB officer. Mm. There was a lot of feeling that they had more integrity than that. And that was felt and practiced by a lot of people there. On the other hand, (laughs) if you start looking at all the sort of terrible things that were done by some parts of the KGB and some people in the KGB, even if they weren't exactly taking bribes, for them to paint themselves as sort of this bastion of integrity is also problematic. But, you know, uh, that doesn't undercut it either. Mm. It's really both things were kind of true simultaneously. And there's this great moment that I, I think is super, super interesting where uh, Putin was being interviewed by Charlie Rose and Charlie Rose, you know, more, I don't know if he accused him or just sort of repeated the accusation that you're a kind of a kleptocrat and you've stolen money and everything. And Putin was said, how could, how could you say that? I was, I was, I come up from the KGB. And this is what he meant. I mean, this mm-hmm. is what he meant. My organization was one with integrity and he was speaking to that side of it. So yeah. it was real. Another sort of is this real question, can you talk about how a young agent like Tuan would have been recruited? I mean, we hear he came from Vietnam as a boat person. We hear that he spent five years with a family in Seattle. So he obviously did come over young. Would he have been a plan all the time from the Vietnamese government? How did that work? And, and was that real? That was our story is that he's the version of a Vietnamese illegal. Are there examples of such agents or is that we don't, we don't not know, that we, we can talk about? <laughs> we don't know. I mean, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, there, there are plenty of examples of kind of sister intelligence services to mm-hmm. the KGB loaning them mm-hmm. officers mm-hmm. to use for their purposes. So that's what that was based on mm-hmm. more than any knowledge of. As far as I know, yeah. there were not Vietnamese uh, illegals in the United States. Yeah. Who came as children. That's the astonishing yeah. part. Yeah. Well, you think about the 
fire that he was forged in. This is not a kid who grew up like Paige and Henry have grown mm -hmm. up. And that's part of our story that was fun to tell this mm -hmm. season is Philip and Elizabeth playing parents to a kid who's so much more like them in so yeah. many ways. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now for more on the greenhouse scene. First, director Chris Long on the difficulties the wheat storyline presented. That was a real challenge because we were doing that story out of season. So we ended up growing our own 25 acres of wheat. Really? <laughs> Which, yeah, because we needed wheat that was being grown. Yeah. Now, it would grow but the first frost would kill it. So nobody yeah. would ever plant wheat yeah. because it never would come to fruition because it would, the frost would kill it. So we found a farm in Red Hook and we found a really great farmer, Farmer Ken, who helped us out and we used his farm. And we started working on this in the summer and we planted, I think it was 25 or 30 acres of wheat, I can't exactly remember, wow. which we knew was going to die. And luckily we shot before the first frost. It got to a reasonable height. <laughs> And then we supplemented it with fake wheat. Because I'm sure Farmer Ken's wheat was super healthy wheat, Super right? healthy. Well, it was also, you know, in the ground and green. <laughs> right, Because that's right. the colour of wheat before it turns. Yeah. And it was about 12 to 18 inches high. Uh -huh. We had to supplement it with other wheat and we used grass at some point. We used, we used yeah. all kinds of things for, <laughs> to make it happen, to make the sick wheat and everything else. Right. As you know, our stages are here in the Gowanus, Brooklyn. And we shoot all around the five boroughs and sometimes a little bit in Manhattan, uh, normally for Moscow, the Upper East Side. Uh -huh. But we actually went to Moscow this year to shoot some exteriors. And we went to Red Hook, two and a half hours drive from here, to shoot all the farm and the wheat stuff. So so for us as the Americans, this is the first time that we took two excursions, one to Red Hook and one to Moscow. <laughs> and just for anyone listening who is familiar with Red Hook in Brooklyn, this is actually Red Hook in Upstate. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. In episode two, the greenhouse that's actually sitting on the farm didn't exist. That was in the Bronx. That's a visual effect. Mm -hmm. So we shot Elizabeth entering the greenhouse in the Bronx. And then we put the greenhouse into the wide shots of the farm in visual effects. So that was all completely done. In the greenhouse. Yeah. There's a scene that in some ways it's kind of reminiscent of the birds where right. yep. Elizabeth thinks there's one bug. And right. before she knows it, there's thousands, right. maybe millions, who knows. What vibe were you trying to evoke? I was definitely going for her. Hitchcockian, uh -huh. I definitely was, was, was leading the audience there. It's a sequence that, interestingly enough, my first AD, Michelle, I kept saying, I don't think it's going to take this long to shoot, Michelle. I don't think, and, and it did, <laughs> because I wanted to be very precise with the shots, with the setup. We don't like to schmuck bait in our show. We don't like to lead the audience somewhere where it's not going. But definitely in that setup, you're very aware that something is coming. There yeah. are some definite boo moments within that. So one of the challenges, of course, is you're doing it without the bugs. You're asking Kerry to play this without any interaction with, with anything that's there. So that's really difficult to do. And she did an amazing job with it as we were deciding, you know, whether Elizabeth would run, would stay. What would Elizabeth Jennings do if all these bugs were, were coming at her? And of course, she'd stay. She'd let them land on her and then and then deal with it. Yeah. She knows running won't do any good at that, yeah. at that point. Next, Dan Stoloff on what made it tough to photograph. In episode two, 
I believe you're responsible for some of the really beautiful scenes of Elizabeth encountering the bugs yeah. for the first time. So what are the challenges of a shot like that? Well, that was tricky because the greenhouse was a practical greenhouse. You couldn't move walls. You had to basically work with what you had. One of the other things I found very challenging about that, too, was that they wanted no lighting inside. They wanted it to feel that the guys left the lab and they turned off the lights and nobody was home. And so you're faced with a problem. Okay, I'm in a totally dark spot. I'm trying to tell a very complicated story. Where does the light come from? That was my big challenge there. And we never had the opportunity to see the place at night, nor to experiment. We just kind of had to spitball, how are they going to make this look good? So that A, it's dark and moody, and B, it's telling the story. You need to see the the dead wheat, you need to see the live wheat, you need to see the bugs, you need to see Kara's reaction, you need to get a sense of the scope of the place. We ended up using a very large condor lift with a moonlight effect on the top of the greenhouse. And I was really lucky. It just worked. It just looked great. It and does, and yeah. I I was I had a lot of fear going into that because I just didn't know what it was going to look like. And I I couldn't test it. We couldn't we don't have the facilities to set something like that that up as a test. Mm-hmm. So we basically just moved the light around around the greenhouse to position it wherever we wanted it to try to keep it in backlight and to keep it dark. Yeah. And our last take on The Greenhouse comes from visual effects whiz Luke DiTomaso and The American's co-producer, David Woods. We met in a conference room at DiTomaso's company, The Molecule, where he played the scene for me and explained how the effects were created. That's right, audio coverage of visual effects. DiTomaso speaks first. So here now, she's picked the lock of this greenhouse. She's wandering through and... Here, again, you know, sound is so important. Sound is half your picture. You can hear insects. She's examining these stunted, these sort of eaten up wheat stalks. And you can hear these insects, but you don't see them yet. It's effects, but it's not, it's sound effects, obviously. But it tells so much. You know, your brain is thinking, Mm -hmm. hmm, there is activity lurking in these stalks, even though we don't see them yet. She's examining. She's examining these stalks. So now... So here she she's swatting at some of these stalks. Again, we haven't done anything yet. So here these these are the first visual effect shots. We see some some bugs on her legs. She swats them off, and then now she goes to disturb one of these plants. She moves one of the branches, and so now here we're we're responding to what's there. So now these midges, these these insects, start flying off of the. She's disturbed their their slumber, so to speak, and now. These midges come out of the woodwork. Her performance is, you know, holding as still as possible as these midges cover her face. These, these bugs cover her body and swarm around her. As the camera pulls back, we reveal that there are more and more stalks and that there's a whole swarm of these, yeah. these insects. None of those insects were there. Clearly, <laughs> obviously, that would be a sort of very uncomfortable situation and so we have here and several components going on so we have the midges that are flying around in the foreground Uh and those were done with what we call dynamics each 
insect was a point in space that then was simulated to swarm around. And then we had a, a different technique for the ones that uh, attached to her face and to her body. Mm -hmm. And those are basically just black dots that we tracked to, you know, but at mm -hmm. that scale, at that yeah, distance, yeah, yeah. It, it's, you don't need that level of detail. But then, you know, for instance, uh, you'll have some of these midges kind of fly close to the camera. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. one big discussion we had. And again, the, another big component of this, again, another dark scene with very yes, small insects. Yes, yes. And so part of it was that TV legibility. How do yeah. we make these midges read? And so part of that was enhancing or just sort of highlighting them so that they can be more legible than perhaps in real. If we had real bugs in that space, they might not have been quite as legible. Yeah. This job was a lot harder to do before people just posted random videos of whatever on the internet, on YouTube. Our job has gotten so much easier when there are people in Scotland posting pictures of midge swarms. Wow. Because we would not know have known what a midge swarm looked like, thanks to that unnamed person in Scotland. One of the insights we had about this was when they flew in the air closer to you, they actually were lighter in color. And then when they were like on your skin, mm -hmm. they were like black. And it was a weird sort of whatever the way these insects reflect light or absorb light or whatever. We saw it in the video and we're like, that that was one of the big things that helped us realize they were going to be readable. Finally, let's hear a bit more from director of photography Dan Stoloff. As we sat in the Jennings's living room in a break between shooting, he explained what his job entails. I am here with Dan Stoloff, who is the director of photography on this episode. And I understand there are two directors of photography on this show. Yes, there are. We alternate episodes so that while one of us is shooting, the other one is prepping. That's kind of an efficiency. Yeah, it's even more than efficient. It's creative, too, because it enables time for uh, the DP to work with the director and to come up with solutions before we get on set. When there's only one DP, you come in on the day and they sort of show you around what they want to do. When there's no been no conversation, there's been no exchange of ideas. There's really been no specific sharing of of approaches. So yeah. sometimes you find yourself in that situation in the middle of something. Like, why am I even? Why are we doing this? This is a conversation maybe we could have had, and we could have come up with a much more efficient and better, not just efficient, yeah. but more creative, better solution. Because this show, like most TV shows, is basically filming an episode a week. Uh, yeah, I would say about eight days okay. is our average. So it's a little more than that. Because we have two DPs, it enables us to do tandem days, which means we're both working. We both have units going. Sometime during the prep, I may get pulled off of prep and to do a pickup shot mm -hmm. or an insert or whatever. It just enables the whole flow of production to, to move more effortlessly. Can you tell us quickly what a pickup shot and an insert Well, is? a pickup shot would be a, you, you've shot a scene and uh, for whatever reason, they decide in editing, we should really have a close-up here that we didn't get on the mm -hmm. day. So can you guys go and just set that one shot up? An insert would be uh, a close-up of the tape recorder with the tape going in. That's not the kind of thing you want to utilize your entire crew for. It's very expensive. Every second costs money. Mm -hmm. So a shot like that might get pushed off to a later date where we would just pick it up. We might use someone else's hands, put the tape in the tape recorder or whatever, mm -hmm. while the actor's off doing something else. I'm going to ask a really, really basic question, which is, what exactly is the job of a director of photography? How do you see that job? It's my job to help get the director's vision photographed. 
We do basically what we need to do in order to do that. Some directors are very specific. Some directors will tell you exactly where they want the lens and exactly what lens it is. And other directors may leave that more up to the director of photography and work more with the performance. Our job is to find out what we are needed for and to facilitate the director we're essentially working to get that director's vision, basically in three dimensions in real life and get it on camera in the time allotted. So that juggling is kind of what our our job description is. I was watching from the sidelines while a scene was being shot. For some reason, I thought you would be like behind the camera, but you were looking at two monitors. Correct. So tell me what you were doing when you were sitting on your Apple box, <laughs> not in one of the director chairs, but on an Apple box. What were you looking Well, what I prefer the at? Apple box because it keeps my back straight. Uh-huh, That's the only reason for that. The I find I slump in the director's chair. Uh-huh. So at the end of the day, after 12 or 13 hours, it adds up. So yeah. I like the Apple box. I can also get out of it very quickly, which yeah, I yeah. have to do a lot of. As a director of photography, part of what my job is is as a conductor of the orchestra in the sense that I've got two cameras going. Each one has specific assignments. If I'm operating one camera, I don't know what the other one's doing. Yeah. So I need to be looking at everything that's happening and see how they work together. Also, Operating requires a certain part of the brain. It requires an awful lot of concentration. Mm -hmm. You're constantly studying the edges, making sure you're keeping the composition right, which means that you're not really looking at the lighting. You can't be looking at the lighting and looking at the edges of the frame at the same time. So by stepping back and by being able to see both monitors and both cameras in action, I'm really looking at not just what the operator's doing, but how the light is and how the how the scene feels, uh, the effect yeah. of what we're trying to get, whether we're getting it or not. And by being on camera, I'd be more concentrating on keeping the headroom right, sitting somebody down or standing mm-hmm. them up. Mm-hmm. And those are all skills. Yeah. While you were on your Apple Box, you're telling them what you want yeah. them to provide. Exactly. And you were sitting with a couple of other people. Obviously, I know television very Gosh, what's the word that everybody always uses? Collaborative. Uh, collaborative, yes. yes. I was collaborating. You were, how, who were you collaborating yeah, my, with and in what way? My gaffer is the guy who is in charge of setting up the lights, huh. running all the power, and basically the lighting instruments and how the instruments are used. The other one is my key grip, and his job is shaping the light and cutting the light off certain areas, as well as the camera movement is his department too, and in, in terms of the dollies, the dolly grips work under his domain. They're basically my two right-hand guys. <laughs> so you've got two monitors and two right hands. And two this right is, hands. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's very convenient. <laughs> Do you photograph scenes that are set in the U.S. differently than scenes yes. in Russia? Yes. Yeah, there's a number of differences in terms of the way we approach them. The most basic is uh, the setting of the camera. We bias it a little more towards a cyan kind of look, which gives it that cheap fluorescent, uh, So that's more of a bluish? Bluish green kind of uh-huh, look uh-huh. to it. I tend to try to use a little more atmosphere when we're in Russia because people smoke. Uh, oh. I like smoke in the air, a yeah. little bit of smoke in the air because mm-hmm. there's a lot of it's a, it feels humid and it feels uh, smoky and it just feels different when we're in the Jennings. It's a very kind of crisp, clean American world when we're in Russia. It's just a little more, it's a little heavier. Everything's mm-hmm. a little heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to light things a little bit darker there too. So yeah, I think there are quite a lot. There are quite a lot of differences, even to the extent that we frame differently because of subtitles. We have to accommodate for subtitles, and the way the show likes to it likes to do bigger subtitles and double space them. You need a good, you know, one fifth of the bottom of the frame 
can have no vital information or it's going to get confusing. So you can't frame too tight and you have to just bear in mind, photograph everything with that in mind that that's got to tell the story. Movies don't do that. You yeah. shoot, shoot, if you're French and you're shooting a movie, you're not thinking about the English subtitles or vice versa. Yeah. They just stick them on. Yeah. Sometimes they put them at the top yeah. if there's graphics at the bottom. And so your eyes are chasing around. We try to keep it as simple as possible. I mean, this is television and God bless them for doing it in Russian. I think that's one of the things that make this show great mm -hmm. is that it doesn't shy away from 15 minute scenes with no dialogue or 12 minute scenes in another language. Yeah. That's just not something you see on television these days. Do you shoot it differently because it's a period piece? The flashbacks we do, and I inherited this, I can't take credit for it, I love it. We shoot them on super 16 millimeter to give them a little bit of a different look and a, and a slightly different feel. And we use vintage lenses. So we use lenses from the 70s, early 70s. The difference between lenses then and lenses now is that not only are they much sharper now, but there's very little lens flare now. The lenses are all very carefully coated, beautifully coated. They're very contrasty. It's hard to get a lens flare. With these old lenses, you pan through a light and you see sort of a cascade of bokehs and yeah. flares and things happening, which give it a totally different Look, if you think back to, uh, I don't know, something like uh, Kung Fu, the original TV show, yeah. old lenses looking at the sun and the camera would always pan through the sun yeah. and you'd see him emerge from like a sea of these yeah. baubles of yeah. light, that that's another thing, that another thing that we would add to give that more of a, a difference. One of the things we always try to do on this show as well, because it is a period piece and because it's set dressing is so spectacular and the props are so spectacular. We try to shoot a little wider than most TV shows. We try to let the viewer take in a little more of the detail. It's not a very cutty show. We're mm -hmm. not going close up, close up, close up, close up. We really want to ground it in the world that we've created and to let the audience live in that shot, live in that world, to look around, to feel it, to see, even if you can see on the spines of the books, mm -hmm. the books are all vintage. Everything you see in the set is legit. We try to make that a feature of the show. Thanks to Joe Weisberg, Joel Fields, Chris Long, Dan Stoloff, Luke DiTomaso, and David Woods for talking episode 502 with me. Thanks also to Ethan Simon for recording assistance and to the American Sarah Nolan for her organizational help. Please join us next week when we'll be talking about episode 503, The Midges, with writer Tracy Scott Wilson and with costume designer Katie Irish. I'm June Thomas. This show is part of the Panoply Network.